Hey, it's Amy, and I'm popping into the feed right now to tell you that I believe we're creating something together here on Threshold. You, me, and the whole team that makes this show. We're making a meeting ground for people who want to think and feel and learn about this unbelievably fascinating and beautiful planet. It's a pretty special place in the audio landscape, but we need your support for it to grow and thrive. There are lots of ways you can help. You can make a donation and also make introductions. Mention the show to a friend or a coworker. Share an episode with your network. Your recommendation is how more people will find this community and join the conversation. Learn more about how you can help at thresholdpodcast.org. And thank you so much for listening. This season of Threshold is underwritten by the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. I'm on a road trip across the Arctic tundra, way up in far northwestern Russia. The landscape is mostly wide open snowy fields, except every once in a while, an industrial complex will sort of pop up out of nowhere, a plant with a big smokestack or a mine, and nearby a small city with Soviet-style apartment buildings. These are company towns, built to support the mines and smelting plants dotted across this region, which is called the Kola Peninsula. When it comes to Kola Peninsula, which is very, very rich in mineral resources, it has the whole periodic system uh, behind the ground. Welcome to Threshold. I'm Amy Martin, and this is Anna Kireva, my interpreter for this trip. You met her in our last episode. We're on our way to the town of Nickel so named because of the enormous nickel mine and smelting plant there, which have been in operation since the middle of the 20th century. Smelting, by the way, is just using extreme heat to extract metal out of a larger chunk of rock. So every day for decades, workers here have been digging up nickel and blasting it with heat in giant ovens, and there's still a lot more in the ground. The operations are owned by a company called Norilsk Nickel. Norilsk Nickel is the name of the company. It has two branches in Russia. It has two working sites, one in Norilsk and one in Murmansk region. So let's zoom out here for a minute and get oriented. The town of Nickel, where we're going, is just seven kilometers from the Norwegian border. Norilsk, where this company was founded, is way east of here, over in central Siberia, and it has a very dark history. It started out as a prison camp, or gulag, as they were known in Soviet times. Between 1935 and 1956, more than 400,000 people were forced to work in the Norilsk mines in horrible conditions, and the majority of them were political prisoners. This happened under the rule of the Soviet Union's most infamous dictator, Joseph Stalin. More than a million people died in his gulags. So that's how this company, Norilsk Nickel, was built, on slave labor essentially. It's now one of the wealthiest companies in Russia, with an estimated worth of more than $16 billion, and it's also one of the Arctic's biggest polluters. Norilsk Nickel pollutes in a variety of ways, but probably the biggest problem is sulfur dioxide. It's released into the air during the smelting process, where it reacts with water in the atmosphere and then comes back down to earth as acid rain, killing plants and damaging the soil and the water. For humans, sulfur dioxide is most dangerous before it bonds with water, right when it comes out through the smokestack. Just like the three smokestacks we can see towering over the town as we arrive in Nickel. We have to remember that uh, half of the Arctic is Russia, and, and half of Russia is Arctic. 
I am a patriot and I love this country. I know it's bad sides and I know it's good sides. Are you at all afraid protesting that you might get in trouble? No, I'm not afraid protest. No, 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 I don't want to go back to the Soviet Union. Do some people? Yes, uh, more and more, because they don't remember all the bad things which happened. Mm. There's a festival underway as we pull into town, a reenactment of some World War II events and a celebration of Soviet music. A few hundred people have gathered to watch their neighbors take turns at the mic, singing the old Soviet hits. There's a whole lot that's pretty surreal about this scene. The big red Soviet flag fluttering in the breeze over the stage area, the kids playing on the anti-tank gun nearby, and the behemoth of a factory in the background, spewing a dark cloud out of one of its three giant smokestacks. This town has been built right next to the plant. You could walk to it easily. About 12,000 people live in Nickel, and almost every family has someone who works in the mine or the smelter. A group of friends are listening to the music on a park bench, and we stop to talk. They say this community is a tight-knit, tough group of people. Okay, we were born here. Uh, our parents came to Nikel to, to rebuild the town, the, the settlement after the Second World War, because everything was destroyed. And uh, the, uh, the country needed nickel and the production. Nickel's most common use today is in the production of stainless steel. It adds strength and resists corrosion. But experts say the nickel market is being transformed by demand for electric vehicles because it's a key component in the batteries needed for those cars. Are you worried about the, the pollution coming from the plant? It looks like a lot of smoke coming out. We are concerned about it, sometimes very concerned about it. This woman and her husband were pushing their eight-month-old baby in a stroller through the crowd. She's a hairdresser. He didn't want to say what he did for a living. And Anna had recommended that I shouldn't press people for their names. Can you do anything when you're concerned? Is there anyone you can complain to to make it decrease? Uh, no, we are not complaining about that. Actually, this uh, pollution and uh, the decision to do anything about pollution depends on administration, not on people who live here. Do you think most people are also worried, other your neighbors and family? I think that everyone who lives here is concerned about the pollution. But yeah, but mostly because of kids. We are grown-ups. We are pretty much resistant, but the kids. The effects of sulfur dioxide on plants and soil are pretty obvious. There's a huge dead zone around Norilsk, the former Siberian gulag. Forests there have been degraded for more than a thousand square miles, and the Green Cross of Switzerland has twice listed it as one of the top 10 most polluted places in the world. But sulfur dioxide is bad for people, too. One analysis in 2002 looked at about 400 studies that examined the health effects of sulfur dioxide around the world. These studies came from sites like pulp mills, refrigerator plants, and smelters, including nickel. And the authors found that exposure to high concentrations of sulfur dioxide can lead to chronic respiratory issues. A more recent study also found dangerously high levels of heavy metals in people in the whole Murmansk region. And the closer you live to a smelter, the higher your risks, the study said. Two older gentlemen are hanging out toward the edge of the crowd. One of them says he works in the mine, and when I ask him how it is, he says, I don't complain. 
He's also pushing a stroller with a baby inside. He says it's his grandson. What are, what are your hopes for your grandchild? I don't know, to grow up a good person. Hmm. And of course I want him to live in a peaceful time. Yeah. So what is up? Why has this company been allowed to spew pollution onto these people for generations? Well, the president of Norilsk Nickel is a man named Vladimir Potanin. He's a billionaire many times over, and he's widely given the credit or the blame for devising the corrupt scheme of privatization in the early 1990s that transferred massive amounts of Russian resources into the hands of a small group of people with access to political leaders. And Potanin has kept himself in proximity to power. He's on the so-called Putin list, a list of 96 oligarchs with close connections to Putin created by the U.S. Treasury Department in response to Russia's alleged meddling in the 2016 U.S. elections. So Potanin has been allowed to become absurdly rich. He has multiple jets and yachts, ownership stakes in other companies, while the mines and plants he owns continue to pollute. The company has recently closed one of its worst polluting plants in Norilsk, and they say they plan to make improvements here in Nickel, too. Potanin has made statements about how he's doing his civic duty now. But only someone deeply insulated from reality could congratulate himself over plans to clean up stolen assets when he could have done it decades before and saved countless people from disease and untimely death. But you know, he was busy. Lots of yachts to keep track of. We've driven five minutes away from the town center and pulled over on the side of the road next to the smelter. Anna points out one of the craziest things about it. A ton of the pollution isn't coming out of the smokestack. It's just billowing out of the factory building itself. It's so old and run down that there are smoky clouds leaking out of every available crevice. We were there in May, and there was still a lot of snow on the ground, but where it had melted, we could see that the ground was black. Anna says in the summertime, you can see a big ring around the plant where nothing grows. Another dead zone, like the one around Norilsk. So, in a nutshell, the history of Norilsk Nickel goes like this. Phase one, gulag. Phase two, ordinary state-owned company, but not a prison camp. Phase three, controlled by private investors, many of whom are the current authoritarian leaders' close allies. But through it all, one thing has stayed constant. Power has remained concentrated at the top, with devastating consequences for the ecosystem and ordinary people. We'll have more after this short break. Welcome back to Threshold. I'm Amy Martin, and we're going to broaden out from the pollution problems in nickel now because Norilsk Nickel is just one of many companies cashing in on the resources in the Arctic with little to no oversight. Here's just a small sample of some of the other environmental stories unfolding in the Russian Arctic. The world's biggest liquefied natural gas plant has been built in north-central Siberia, threatening the future of the Nanets, an indigenous reindeer herding culture. There are huge oil and gas developments in the eastern part of the country, too. There's the offshore oil drilling that we talked about a few episodes ago. There's deforestation, that's more in the subarctic. 
and related habitat loss for creatures like the Siberian tiger. And all the climate change stories we've been talking about throughout this season are of course happening in Russia too. Permafrost thaw, sea ice loss, Honestly, the list of important stuff happening in the Russian Arctic just goes on and on, but we almost never hear about it. It's a place that needs a lot more journalists asking a lot more questions. It's a place that needs Thomas Nilsson. Yeah, I've been, uh, been more or less traveling in the northern part of Russia for the last 30 years. Thomas is Norwegian. He lives in the town of Kirkenes, which is just over the border from Russia. He's been reporting in the Russian Arctic for decades, and he's currently the editor of the Barents Observer, an online newspaper which covers northern Scandinavia and northwest Russia. They publish in both English and Russian. We can help uh, the rest of the world understand what's happening up here. To, to go to the oil field or out to, to the areas and talk to the people uh, living on the countryside uh, or in the Russian Arctic, the indigenous peoples on the tundra and, and, and so on. But Thomas isn't going back to Russia anytime soon. Uh, I, I would uh, I would love to go back to to Russia tomorrow morning, but uh, we we had a situation uh, a year ago in March 2017, when I was on one of my ordinary uh, entries into Russia. This time with a delegation from the Danish Parliament, uh, but then uh, stopped at the border, taken aside, brought into a back room uh, with a lot of officers who uh, very politely but uh, uh, still uh, very uh, strong uh, told me that I'm no longer wanted in Russia. He was told he poses a threat to Russia's national security. But exactly what that threat was was a complete mystery to Thomas, and he thinks even to the officers who detained him. I, I could read out of their faces that they, they didn't know why. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just a message coming up on the, the passport control uh, computer when, when I tried to enter. So I, I had to hitchhike back a few hundred meters back to the Norwegian side of the border and and uh, has not been in Russia since uh, since then. You must have been mm. shocked. Uh, yes, I was surprised. I, I didn't uh, I didn't expect that. I have uh, all all my papers in order, my journalist visa, uh, my accreditation to work as a reporter in in Russia. I not even got a speeding ticket in 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 Russia over these 30 years. A few days after he was kicked out of the country, the Russian embassy in Oslo issued a press release saying he was on the so-called stop list but they still weren't saying why. I haven't violated any visa regulations or any other Russian laws or regulations. Uh, not, not one single time I violated any of those. Uh, so so I'm, I'm taking FSB to court, uh, trying to find out why uh, I'm, uh, I'm denied entry to Russia. And secondly, uh, to get back my right to do my job as a journalist uh, on Russian territory. The FSB is the Russian Federal Security Service. Much like its Soviet predecessor, the KGB, it operates mostly in secret, and it has a shocking amount of power to surveil ordinary Russian citizens. The head of the FSB reports directly to the president. So when an independent journalist like Thomas says he's suing the FSB, it's so audacious, it's almost funny. How does one take the FSB to court? Yeah, that's, uh, that's the, the main, uh, was, the, was the first question. Uh, first of all, who denied me access to Russia? Just figuring that much out took three court cases. But eventually Thomas got confirmation. The FSB was responsible. And with help from a lawyer in Moscow, his case got a hearing. Of course, he wasn't allowed to be there for any of it, since he was still banned from the country. The judge uh, did a good job. They listened to both uh, parties' uh, arguments and, and so on. But then came the surprise. Uh, the ruling uh, by the court uh, was uh, kept secret. 
I'm not allowed to enter Russia. But uh, the arguments and the reasons why I'm not allowed to enter Russia is kept uh, secret for my lawyer uh, to read. So, uh, and, th- and that is a clear violation of uh, uh, the Russian constitution. Thomas appealed the ruling, and it went all the way to the Russian Supreme Court. But the Supreme Court ruled that the FSB was right. Thomas does pose a threat to Russia, and the courts don't have to turn over the FSB's reasoning on what that threat is. But he's not stopping. He's now taking the case all the way to the European Court of Human Rights. So what is this all about? Thomas has a hunch. Every society that have leaders who are on the paths of totalitarian uh, systems are afraid of the, the freedom of speech. They are afraid of free journalism. Uh, so I think that uh, the main reason why the media in Russia and also the Barnes Observer here uh, covering cross-border issues with Russia is uh, under attack is uh, because they are afraid. Thomas says there are other European journalists who travel in Russia and report on corruption and repression by the Kremlin, but very few publish in Russian, with the express intention of trying to provide independent journalism to the Russian people. We are uh, the only newspaper in northern Scandinavia that is publishing in Russian language. And we have thousands of readers on the Russian side of the border. And even though the Barents Observer is tiny, they have a full-time staff of two, Thomas says this wasn't the first time they've been harassed. In 2014, officials accused the Observer of being a mouthpiece for the Norwegian government. And that same year, the FSB directly requested that Norwegian officials close the paper down. These uh, Norwegian officials uh, responded that, that uh, uh, that's not the way it works in Norway. We have the media freedom and authorities never interfere in, into the, the, the media. For Thomas, this fight is about a lot more than his own personal freedom to report in Russia. Putin began cracking down on independent journalism almost immediately after being elected for the first time in 2000. And reporters who write stories challenging him or his policies have a tendency to die under mysterious circumstances. As a recent example, in July of 2018, three Russian journalists were murdered in the Central African Republic while reporting on Russian soldiers being sent there to work for hire, a scheme with potential Kremlin connections. And when a Russian activist attempted to investigate their deaths, he was poisoned. He's still alive, but many others like him are not. The Committee to Protect Journalists lists Russia as number 11 on its global impunity index, meaning when Russian journalists are killed or attacked, it's rare for anyone to be held accountable. All of this has huge implications for Russians, first and foremost, but Thomas says it also matters to anyone who cares about the future of the Arctic. We have to remember that uh, half of the Arctic is Russia, and, and half of Russia is Arctic. Uh, and uh, the majority of the population living in the circumpolar Arctic actually are on the Russian side of the border. It sounds like it's pretty difficult to actually tell the story of this huge, huge part of, of the Arctic. And so what, what do we lose by not knowing more? Like, how can that affect, I don't know, decision-making, policy, international relations by just not having the information? Uh, I think uh, the most untold stories that we really want to, to travel and do on-site reporting on uh, are uh, the consequences for the locals uh, living in areas where big oil is moving in, 
or where uh, the military start to rebuild uh, their their camps or uh, airports and naval facilities and and so on. So uh, the media's role of being the voice of like indigenous reindeer herders mm-hmm. uh, that is what uh, what I'm most scared that we are, we are we are lacking. They, uh, they could just get kind of wiped off the map, and we would never really. We will most likely not uh, realize it uh, before it's too late for, for, for many of them. So, so And that, that is what journalism is all about. It's about being inside and being able to see uh, a story from different perspectives. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, that is more difficult to do today in, uh, in northern Russia. Being in Russia made me think a lot about the power of the gaze. Who is the watcher and who is the watched? The regime has eyes and ears everywhere. If they want to know what you're up to, they will. And just the threat of that invasion is powerful. People change their behavior and even their thinking when they feel scrutinized. And that's exactly why the authorities don't want anyone watching them. And especially not people who are going to bear witness and then share those stories with the Russian people. I am a patriot. I think I love this place and I love this country and I know it. That's why I love it. So I know it's bad sides and I know it's good sides. We're going to call this person Elena. She didn't want me to use her real name. I'm talking to her back in Russia. Does this feel like a democracy? No, of course not. I think we are not free here, really. When I ask Elena for examples of that lack of freedom, one of the first things she says is the regime's control over the media. She says the silencing of journalists is only one part of that story. They have much more subtle methods as well. For instance, she believes they've created some channels that appear to sometimes challenge the authorities. But they're not really opposed to Putin, so... It's like a show. Yes, it's like a show for its purposes. She says it's all about giving the impression that opposition voices are tolerated. You know, when, when people realize that they have no choice and they have no right, uh, they can become angry. And to prevent it, they uh, started to create something that is a bit different from the mainstream. And it gives a sort of feeling that There is some choice, really, but it's not actually a choice. It's the same scheme which many analysts say Putin uses in elections. Present a list of candidates so that people feel like they have the power to choose. Well, this is what I believe, that it's a kind of um, marketing thing, giving them a sense that they have a choice, but they really don't. Elena is totally opposed to Putin, and she would like to go out to the street and make her voice heard, but... I I feel that I really can't go, because if I go, it will have an impact on my relatives, maybe, or it, it can have even an impact on my health and on my well-being, um, so... How could it impact your health? Well, I don't really... Uh, I don't really know what are the conditions uh, for those people who are caught during uh, the demonstrations. And I don't really understand where these people are taken 
and what are the conditions they are kept in. Maybe they are not given food. I can easily uh, expect it actually because uh, authorities try to do their best uh, to prevent people doing it again. So they just scare people to death and they can beat people, so it's just direct threat. And she feels that threat in other ways too. For instance, around the Victory Day parade that happened a few days before we talked. This is when the country marks the end of World War II, which they call the Great Patriotic War. More than 26 million Soviet citizens died in that war, and more than half were civilians. The suffering was horrific. No country lost more people. So it makes sense that Russians would mark this day in a big way. But Elena wants to mark it as a day of mourning, not celebration. Because this holiday remains sad for me. It's just, it's all about killing people during the war. It's all about people who were lost. But she feels like this day has been co-opted by the Putin regime. It's being turned into a showcase of military power, she says, and charged up with nationalist rhetoric. And she doesn't want any part of it. But she works for a state-owned company, and she says it was made very clear that all employees would be going to the parade. And she was questioned about her attendance the next day at work. Well, somebody asked me, well, were you there? And I said, yes, I was. I didn't see you. And then I told, yes, I was. I was standing over there. And they say, okay. And do you know that these people left? So it was like, it was weird. Yeah, what does that make you feel? Oh, you know, I don't know. Maybe just not free enough. We're supposed to do something that we don't really want. And we even don't realize properly that we don't want to do that. That's the problem. What do you mean? I mean, I mean, we don't ask ourselves sometimes whether we really want to do this or, or we just have to and we go. Because if you ask yourself and you discover you don't want to go, then you have a conflict. Yes, then it would be even more difficult to go. Uh-huh. So you're saying almost like there's internal censorship. Yeah. Mm. This is one of the effects of authoritarian power that I find the most disturbing. The way it messes with your head and makes it hard to fully know your own mind, let alone speak it. Creating an atmosphere of uncertainty and fear is a powerful means of control, and it comes straight out of the Stalin playbook. During his 30-year rule, Joseph Stalin killed 20 million people. Almost as many Soviet citizens were killed at the hands of their own leader as were killed during World War II. But lately, Putin's been trying to soften Stalin's image in the country, and by many accounts, it's working. When I asked one Russian man about his opinions on Stalin, he said, well, you know, this is a really big country. Maybe we needed a strong leader. Do you have hope for Russia? No, I think no. No, not for next uh, 20, 30 years, at least. So I'll be 66 and maybe I'll have hope. <laughs> oh my gosh. 
It's too serious and too big to be changed quickly. Not for now, not for this generation, I, I'm afraid. Mm. Maybe, maybe a bit later. Elena's great-grandfather disappeared under the Stalin regime. He was living in a small village and he just didn't come home one night. He left a wife and three young girls behind, ages 5, 8, and 12. One of those girls was Elena's grandmother, and her life was forever changed. She and her two sisters had to go to work in the fields to support the family, and they never saw their father again. I asked Elena why her great-grandfather had been targeted. Was he organizing the opposition or something? She said, no, the problem was that he was smart. He had ideas for improvements, and he was becoming a leader in his small community. He had a mind of his own. And in the Stalin era, that was dangerous. It's increasingly dangerous in today's Russia too. And that means some of the most important things happening in the Arctic are going unseen and unquestioned. Season 2 of Threshold is funded by the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting, the Park Foundation, Montana Public Radio, and PRI's The World, and by our listeners. You can support our show at thresholdpodcast.org slash donate. Threshold is made by Nick Mott, Rachel Kramer, Cheryl Skabicki, and me, Amy Martin, with help from Frank Allen, Jackson Barnett, Josh Burnham, Michael Connor, Rosie Costin, Matt Hurlihy, Rachel Klein, Zoe Rome, Nora Sachs, Maxine Spire, and Zach Wilson. Special thanks to Vitaly Akimov, Tim Anderson, and Olga Kramer. Our music is by Travis Yost. And in our next episode... We traveled to northern Canada to hang out with some Inuit rock stars. Life is too hard without music. That's next time on Threshold.
на душе и в радость, и в покой. Мы не забудем, как вы в сражениях жарких добывали. Мир и счастье для